Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratty. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, January 6, 2015. And let me wish all my listeners Happy New Year. As you know, the 114th Congress convenes today. So I'll start off our general news section by summarizing what will be some of the first orders of business for the new Congress and how an expected House rule change could affect tax credit legislation in the current session. In our low-income housing tax credit section, I'll talk about an update on the progress of HUD's rental assistance demonstration program. I'll also share a memo from HUD concerning marijuana use. That's right, marijuana use in subsidized multifamily housing properties. I'll close out the section with state-level news from Iowa, where a new workforce housing tax incentives program will be administered. Then, we'll move on to this week's new markets tax credit segment. I'll talk about some updates that the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, or CDFI Fund, issued on its frequently asked questions document on new markets tax credit compliance. In historic tax credit news, I have news about an Oregon State bill that we expect to be introduced next month to create an Oregon State historic tax credit program. In our renewable energy tax credit section, I'll talk about why a renewable energy leader thinks 2015 could be a big year for U.S. renewable energy policy. Finally, I'll discuss an open letter sent by environmental groups urging their Montana congressional delegation to extend the Renewable Energy Production and Investment Tax Credit. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, the 114th Congress convened today. The House follows a well-established routine on its first day in session. One of the first orders of business is to elect the Speaker of the House. This vote is typically just a formality. After Republicans commanded the midterm elections in November, they unofficially voted John Boehner to a third term as Speaker of the House. At that time, Republicans offered no other nominees, and Speaker Boehner is expected to win the Speakership again in a vote today. Another top priority for the House is to adopt its rules. The House adopts rules every two years, while the Senate carries over rules since two-thirds or so of each Senate returned from the previous Congress every election cycle. One of the expected rule changes in the House will be a requirement to use dynamic scoring, a frequent topic on our podcast. That's the method dynamic scoring is that considers macroeconomic effects of legislation when estimating long-term budgetary effects. As I mentioned last week, House Republican leaders introduced a proposal to the House Rules Committee that would require the Congressional Budget Office and the Joint Committee on Taxation to apply dynamic scoring to major pieces of legislation in the new Congress. The Republicans' numerical advantage means the proposal will almost certainly pass. So what does the use of dynamic scoring mean for the tax credit community? Well, the low-income housing tax credit and new market tax credit proposals could be shown as costing less or even be revenue positive under certain dynamic scoring assumptions. The same applies to the historic tax credit and renewable energy tax credits. 
In those cases, it could be argued that these tax credit programs pay for themselves through added tax revenues generated and through stimulated economic growth. It's a method that Republicans have long supported. Now, what about those who oppose the method of dynamic scoring? What do they argue? Well, they say that dynamic scoring can lead to overestimating the expansion of the economy. They also argue that if dynamic scoring estimates are wrong, it could require some harsh cuts in the future. Some believe that the issue of dynamic scoring is the reason why Congressional Budget Office Director Douglas Elmendorf will be replaced. His term expired Saturday, and his replacement has not yet been named. Republicans have viewed Elmendorf as being resistant to dynamic scoring, so they'll likely choose a successor for him who does support dynamic scoring. I'll have more updates as they become available. You can follow me on Twitter for the latest news. My handle is at Novogratik. In affordable housing news, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, released an update on the progress of its Rental Assistance Demonstration, or RAD, program. The first component of RAD allows public housing and moderate rehabilitation properties to convert to long-term Section 8 rental assistance contracts. The second component allows rent supplement rental assistance payments, and moderate rehabilitation properties to convert tenant-based vouchers to project-based assistance after they expire or are terminated. According to HUD's recent newsletter, as of the end of November, about 10,200 units have closed under RAD's first component. Together, these units are undertaking $400 million in construction activity, or about $40,000 per unit. All in all, RAD has awarded 58,200 units under its first component. As listeners know, the recently passed 2015 Appropriations Act expanded the RAD program in several ways. First, it changed the cap on RAD's first component from 60,000 units to 185,000 units. Second, it extended authority to continue conversions for rent supplement, rental assistance payment, and mod RIA properties under the second component of RAD. And third, Section 8 moderate rehabilitation, single-room occupancy, or SRO properties will now be eligible for RAD. HUD said that it is currently updating its RAD notice, or PIH Notice 2012-32, to reflect this expansion and provide other clarifications. We'll keep you posted as more details become available. Next, we have another HUD update. It's on a subject that has been getting a lot of attention in the news recently the legalization of marijuana in some states. While marijuana is decriminalized in 23 states and Washington, D.C., it remains off-limits in multifamily housing-assisted properties that receive assistance from HUD. HUD issued that reminder last week, citing the federal law that forbids the manufacture, distribution, or possession of marijuana. HUD's memo said that federal law trumps any state law. Since 1996, nearly half of states have legalized marijuana for either medicinal or recreational use. But the HUD memo cited the Quality Housing and Work Responsibility Act of 1998, which says owners of federally assisted housing are required to deny admission to any household with a member who, at the time of application, is using marijuana or any other illegal controlled substance. The owners 
including public housing agencies, are allowed to terminate the tenancy or assistance for any household with a member who uses marijuana or whose pattern of illegal use interferes with the peaceful enjoyment of the premises by other residents. The emphasis of the HUD memo was the second point, which allows the owner to terminate the occupancy after the tenant moves in based on marijuana use. This is significant to operators of developments where residents receive HUD assistance. And it's a reminder that the federal government doesn't recognize states' efforts to legalize marijuana and that operators must follow federal law. However, in the final paragraphs, the memo gave owners some wiggle room. While the HUD guidelines also called on owners to establish policies that allow the termination of marijuana using residents, it allowed owners the discretion about whether or not to evict existing tenants. If you have any questions about HUD compliance issues, please contact my partner Lance Smith in our San Francisco office at 415-356-8000. In additional news, I have a state-level update from Iowa. The Iowa Economic Development Authority recently adopted new regulations to establish and administer the Workforce Housing Tax Incentives Program. The Workforce Housing Tax Incentives Program is authorized at $20 million and provides a state credit of up to 10% of a qualifying new investment in certain housing developments. Housing developments that qualify for this program can either be new construction or rehabilitation. The regulations also set forth application and agreement requirements, tax incentive amounts, and procedures for application submittal and review process for the program. The program will be administered on a first-come, first-served basis. Under House File 2448, the Workforce Housing Tax Incentives Program became effective upon enactment and applies retroactively to tax year 2014. To learn more about state housing tax credit programs, go to www.taxcredithousing.com or contact my partner, Mike Kresig, in our St. Louis, Missouri office. In New Markets Tax Credit news, the Community Development Finance Institutions Fund, or CDFI Fund, issued an update last week to its Frequently Asked Questions document on New Markets Tax Credit compliance. Please note the updated document supersedes the September 2011 edition. Many of the latest updates were made in consideration of Treasury Decision 9600. Those were regulations that affect equity investments made by community development entities, or CDEs, after September 28, 2012. As you may recall, Treasury Decision 9600 allows CDEs investing in non-real estate qualified active loan community businesses, or COLICBs, to invest certain return of capital from those investments. And these investments could be made, these return of capital investments could be made in unrelated CDFIs that are also CDEs. So the CDFI fund has updated its Frequently Asked Questions document to better align with the provisions of that Treasury decision. One of the updates clarifies that a real estate collect is one that generates more than 50% of its gross income for real estate activities, which includes development, management, or leasing. Therefore, a non-real estate collect is simply a collect that does not satisfy the definition of a real estate collect Or in other words, it generates no more than 50% of its gross income from real estate activities and as a practical matter, will need to generate less than 50% of its gross income from real estate activities. Other updates to the document include topics such as dissolving subsidiaries, something of particular interest in the community as we've gotten past year seven on a number of QEIs, 
Also, topics include terminating allocation agreements, as well as restrictions on the use of bond proceeds under the CDFI bond guarantee program and activities related to the new market tax credit. The updated new market tax credit certification, compliance, monitoring, and evaluation frequently asked questions document can be found at www.cdfifund.gov. And we've posted a copy for you at www.newmarketscredits.com on the policy and regulations page. And a probably most important note, if you have questions as to how these changes could affect your investments, please contact my partner, Ned Stevenson, in our Cleveland, Ohio office, or contact Brad Elphick in our Atlanta, Georgia office. In historic tax credit news, an Oregon historic preservation advocacy group announced plans to introduce the Revitalized Main Street Act in early February. The bill would create a 25% state historic tax credit for qualified expenditures, and it could be paired with the 20% federal historic tax credit. Funds for the state program would come from the auction of state income tax credits at a capped amount. Restore Oregon, which was formerly the Historic Preservation League of Oregon, is working with the Office of the Legislative Council on a draft of the bill. Restore Oregon's executive director, Peggy Moretti, wrote a blog post in December on how a state historic tax credit could, among other things, create jobs, offset costs of earthquake retrofitting, and transform historic downtowns across the state. Restore Oregon estimates that 2,600 buildings in 77 towns across Oregon could qualify for the credit. An economic analysis found that creating an Oregon state historic tax credit would quadruple the number of certified rehabilitation projects in Oregon. Quadruple, that's a big number. It could also increase the amount of federal store tax credits going to Oregon by more than $13 million because more projects would become financially viable. At the time of this recording, Restore Oregon expects the Senate Finance and Revenue Committee will introduce the bill in early February, and it expects that a hearing will be held for the bill around early March. The advocacy group organized an online petition in support of the legislation. That online petition can be found at www.restoreoregon.org. As soon as the bill text becomes available, we'll post it at www.historictaxcredits.com. And if you have any questions about the Oregon proposal or other state historic tax credit programs, please contact my partner, Nicola Panoli, in our Portland, Oregon office at 503-821-2700. Let's move on to renewable energy tax credit news. Although the retroactive one-year extension of the production tax credit falls short of what many renewable energy advocates had hoped for, and it's already expired, some believe the potential for longer-term solution is just around the corner. In an interview with Recharge, a business news website, Todd Foley said he was optimistic that the new Congress and President Obama will achieve significant movement on energy tax credit legislation. Foley is the Senior Vice President of Policy and Government Relations at the American Council for Renewable Energy, or ACOR. Foley said that the issue in Washington isn't so much that lawmakers are opposed to renewables. He said their bigger problem has been deciding whether they want to work together. This may change with the new Congress. With the Republicans in charge of both houses, they'll feel the need to deliver results. The fact that President Obama is entering his final two years in office is also significant. The president has a history of supporting renewables, and he may want to add this to his legacy. Still, many believe that the way Washington does business doesn't lend itself to standalone legislation. That means renewable energy legislation will likely be part of a broader energy tax bill or a tax extenders item. Foley sees a potential move to comprehensive tax reform as a positive. 
Rather than having tax credits that must be continually extended, Congress may consider putting renewables on equal footing with the fossil fuel sector. Fossil fuels have more than a dozen permanent provisions in the tax code. The renewables energy has somewhat stalled over the past two years. Much of that is due to uncertainty over the future of the production tax credit. After adding 16 gigawatts of new capacity in 2012, it dropped to just 7 gigawatts in 2013, and what's expected to come in between 10 and 12 gigawatts in 2014. Now, with the midterm elections in the rearview mirror, Congress does have a chance to give developers and investors a long-term confidence they need to continue growing renewable energy. In related news, a group of 13 environmental groups last week sent an open letter to the three congressional representatives from Montana urging them to protect the state from climate change. One step outlined in the letter was to extend the production tax credit and investment tax credit for renewable energy. The letter called both tax credits business-friendly policies that can help create Montana jobs in wind, solar, and other clean energy industries. Passing a long-term extension of the tax credits could be a game-changer for Montana's wind power production. The State Department of Commerce says the state leads the nation in wind energy power potential. According to the American Wind Energy Association, 6% of Montana's power in 2013 came from wind. And AWEA says wind power is capable of meeting more than 240 times the state's current electricity needs. As listeners know, the production tax credit expired at the end of 2014 after a brief two-week extension. And without any further legislative action, the investment tax credit is scheduled to be reduced from 30% to just 10% in 2017. The letter was sent to Senator John Tester, a Democrat, Senator-elect Steve Daines, a Republican, and Representative-elect Ryan Zinke, another Republican. And it was signed by groups that include Glacier Climate Action and the Montana Sierra Club. If you have questions about the PTC or ITC, I encourage you to reach out to my partner, Stephen Tracy, in our San Francisco office, or Tony Grapponi in our Boston, Massachusetts office. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. And as always, email your questions to cpas at novaco.com. This is Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.